Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. A lot of you have been emailing me to talk about the new Netflix show called Gypsy, 2017, starring Naomi Watts. You might remember remember her from The Ring or Mulholland Drive, both excellent movies. Mulholland Drive is one of my favorite movies of all time, actually. Because, the reason why a lot of people are emailing me is because Gypsy is about a therapist. The main the main character, Naomi Watts, is a therapist, a counselor. And it's not a secondary plot device. It's like the main plot device. Her her being a counselor is a main part of, of the story. And so a lot of you have been asking what I think of it. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor who teaches therapists. This show, Gypsy, was created by Lisa Rubin. According to IMDb, this is her first project, which is weird uh, to have such a high-profile project for you know, your first outing into Hollywood, which is not typical. Apparently, after graduating a few years ago and moving to L.A., she became sought after because she was known for writing really great sex scenes. I don't know how people knew that, but uh, Hollywood people, insiders knew that. And she said that Hollywood people were, were basically looking for another Fifty Shades of Grey. In fact, Sam Taylor Johnson, who directed the Fifty Shades of Grey movie, was director and executive producer of the first two episodes of, Gis- of Gypsy. So if you're looking for some good sex scenes, uh, particularly between women, <laughs> the, the show might be for you. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I've never seen Fifty Shades of Grey. I've never read it. But f- uh, from my impression of those uh, pieces of art, literature, movie, film, whatever, I'm guessing that Gypsy's better. <laughs> um, so uh, it's not something um, to just uh, ignore for that reason. Um it, it, again, it's basically about a therapist who invades her client's lives. Oh, by the way, I, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for the most part, so just know that. And the show is kind of dependent on you watching and not knowing what's happening. Um, uh, but uh, before moving forward, I, I, I want to... Uh, so so if, if you're worried about spoilers and you're going to pause this... Uh, just wait a second, because I have an announcement to make. Uh, we have an official sponsor for the very first time. As a, as a lot of you who have been with me on this journey, you know that we added advertisements a year ago, actually. And those ads are inserted by uh, another organization that just you know puts the ads in where I tell them. Put I have no idea what ads they're going to put in. <laughs> in fact, one time... You know, many of you remember uh, during the presidential election, a Trump ad was inserted. And of course, all the listeners uh, emailed me and said, what are you doing? You're allowing them to put a Trump ad in there. <laughs> and and honestly, I wouldn't want anyone, any political person to put an ad on the podcast. So uh, and I contacted the people who insert the ads and they were like, oh, my God, yeah, that was a mistake. And they they pulled that ad from my podcast and a lot of other podcasts, by the way. But but the point is, is that a lot of you have been with me on this journey. And a part of my ability to dedicate time to this podcast depends on revenue, right? Because I have a regular job and 
this podcast takes hours and hours. I mean, just, you know, this, this episode for Gypsy, I probably wouldn't have watched this show just because I have a lot of other shows I want to watch. And so 10 hours of watching the show, that's one and two taking notes while I watch the show and then looking up all the information on the show, you know, it takes a lot of hours. And in order for me to dedicate that time, I, I need to pull time away from my job. And if I'm going to do that, then I need at least some income to kind of offset that. Otherwise I'd be homeless by now. So the, uh, so a lot of you have been with me on this journey and have seen ads infused. Well, this is the first official sponsor that we've had someone who actually has a, you know, individual relationship with us and it's talk space. Actually, we we've talked about this before. We've ta- I've had people on the po- on the podcast talking about online counseling. Talk space is one of the major online counseling platforms on the internet right now. And in fact, one of my former supervisees works at talk space right now. She's, she's a trainer of the online counselors. So I have inside information about their processes. And from what I can tell, they're, they're, they're totally legit. So I, I, I want to talk about them uh, for a second here. Uh, I wouldn't, allow them to be a sponsor of this podcast if I didn't believe in it. Occasionally, people will contact me and say, hey, you know, would you like us to sponsor? And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know if my listeners are really interested in this. But this product is so in line with this podcast. It's, you know, this podcast is an internet thing, right? And and online counseling is an internet thing. And so it's really a wonderful option for people to consider. And as a person myself who does not do online counseling, uh, you, you can doubly believe me as I talk about this because I, I don't do it. I can't, you know, I don't do online counseling and, and I do in, I do in office counseling and typically in office counselors are sort of hostile to online counseling because it's new and it's a threat and this sort of thing. So anyway, my point is, is that, uh, I, I totally believe in this product. I, I don't think that it will, remove in office counseling. I, in my prediction in 20 years, people will turn equally to both online counseling and in office counseling because both have pros and cons, right? Um, you know, it's sort of like uh, when today, for instance, I might go to the store, to the drugstore, to the grocery store and buy stuff. But other times I'll go online and buy things from, you know, Amazon or something. And so both are good and both are a part of my life. And there's pros and cons to each of those, right? Sometimes I need something right away or sometimes I want to actually hold it and look at it or try it on or something. And other times I'm just like, look, it's so much easier for me to just buy it online because I know exactly what it is and da 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 And so I think online counseling will be a, a similar thing for different reasons. But, you know, there's, there's pros and cons. Also, uh, so so if if people sign up for Talkspace this week or maybe next week, and we're in early August 2017 right now, uh, then Talks then Talkspace might become a more consistent sponsor of this podcast. Right now, they're only sponsoring a couple episodes, and basically, they're going to watch the numbers to see how many people sign up. So, uh, if if you if you're curious or you're interested in online counseling. Uh, Sign up with Talkspace and just try it out and use the promo code Kirk, K-I-R-K. I didn't choose that promo code, by the way. I, if I had it, my cho- I would have chose something, although it's pretty easy to remember, I guess, Kirk. But anyway, so use the promo code Kirk 
it's it's always weird when you say your name, you know. But um, with Talkspace, so again, Talkspace uh, promo code correct. Uh, that will signal to Talkspace when you use that pr- promo code that my listeners are signing up for it, and therefore it's worth sponsoring this podcast. If they end up becoming a more consistent sponsor, that will mean great greater revenue for the podcast. Sponsorship is is a it can be a huge revenue uh, uh, flow, or I I'm not an accountant, so um, I don't know the word for it. But anyway, it, 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 when people become sponsors, when organizations become sponsors, it can be a it can be a huge boon to the to the viability of a podcast. So so. Again, Talkspace, promo code Kirk. Um, and if, if they become a more consistent sponsor, that will mean more revenue, and which, which will mean more time that we can all dedicate to this podcast, which will mean more deep dives and more guests and, and so on. So again, if you've been considering online counseling, or if you're just curious and you just want to see what it's like, please sign up today, Talkspace, uh, uh, promo code Kirk. And, and if you use the promo code, you get $30 off your first month. It's it's very affordable. That's part of the the benefits to doing online counseling, and it's very low risk, right? Uh, for instance, Talkspace, their cheapest option is just thirty two dollars per week, and at that level, you get one check in per day with your therapist, not per week. But so for thirty thirty two dollars per week, you get daily contact, you know, with your therapist. And it says you can use audio messages or email messages or even video messaging back and forth between, but it's all what we call asynchronous, meaning that you send a message and then a couple hours later they they respond. So it's not live, you know. So you send a message and your counselor gets back to you. It gets back to you uh, sometime that day. Um, at higher levels, you get more check-ins per day. You know, so if you pay more per week, you you get more check-ins per day, and you also get live video sessions. That The highest level isn't much more than 32. It's actually just $49 per week, which is still relatively cheap when you consider it being compared in-office in, in counseling. And at that level, you get more contacts per day, and you also get a live video session. It, you know, it's cheap presumably because the sessions don't last very long. They're not hour long. You know, it doesn't take a counselor an hour to respond or to read and you know, to take in the message and to respond. So, uh, and also there's very little overhead. You know, there's no office, there's no rent, there's no parking, etc. So that's why they can charge less. So again, if you're curious or if you're having trouble finding a therapist, please give them a try. Again, it's so easy to try. You just sign up and you're ready to go. Uh, listeners email me almost every day asking for referrals. So if you're one of those people, I highly recommend giving Talkspace a try. Again, it's it's so easy to see. You could you could do it right now. And I don't know how long it takes to be hooked up with a counselor, but I'm guessing it's pretty quick. And you'll you'll quickly realize whether or not it's the sort of thing for you. I mean, maybe it's not for you. Maybe you do it for a bit and you're just like, ah, eh, you know, I think in-office is better for me. Um but, uh, you know, if you haven't tried it or you're looking for it, um, I th- you know, I, th- I think it's worth a try. Plus, again, it will benefit all of us <laughs> if, if people do this. Again, use the promo code Kirk to signal to Talkspace that you're one of my listeners and also uh, getting a discount. So as I said earlier, I wouldn't endorse the sponsor unless I was confident that it was legitimately helpful uh, to people and, and even to our society. Our society is... 
we have a massive problem, well, really around the world, in that we don't have access to mental health care. Even we've, I did a whole episode in which I talked about someone who is actually in medical care and actually is a privileged person, has resources, has money, has connections, and they were having a really hard time finding good mental health care, even though they live in the United States. And so we have a problem with that. Well, Talkspace is, an, is one answer to that problem, right? Because anyone all over the world, it's, I, I don't know exactly how they work out the ethics regarding like providing counseling across uh, different, um, uh, what do you call it, um, jurisdictions. I know that they're pretty buttoned up about it, which I'll get into in a second. But anyway, the point is, is that this, this, although, you know, forget about them being a sponsor, forget about them basically paying me to talk about this right now. This is a legitimate good thing for the world. There are people who are not getting health, mental health care and who need it. And this is one of one answer to that problem, a very easy answer to that problem. In fact, uh, you know, what if medical insurance paid for this? What if government agencies uh, and charitable organizations paid for people who couldn't afford this service? Think about how many things uh, could be averted. People who are isolated, people who are upset and have a hard time getting out of their house, people who just need some contact with someone who cares and just aren't willing or ready to actually make an appointment with a therapist and go to the office. I mean, think about how many good things could happen with, with an organization like Talkspace. So again, I wouldn't endorse it if it wasn't a legitimate good thing. And there's been a fair amount of research in the past decade plus and the consensus is that online counseling can be just as effective as in office counseling, depending on the presenting problem, of course, as, and as long as the counselors are treated or are trained in the ethics and the, you know, the competencies in that form of counseling, which Talkspace actually does. They train people, as I was saying earlier. Um, there's, there's several benefits to just online counseling in general, like ease of access for people who live in rural areas or people who are confined or disabled, people who are socially phobic, people who are afraid of the stigma. It's, it's, there's a ton of dumb stigma around going to psychotherapy. And for many people, in-office counseling might really uh, challenge them regarding that stigma, whereas sitting at home and doing, you know, doing online counseling might be a lot less scary for them, which... I can totally understand uh, people who travel frequently, right? If you travel all the time, it's going to be hard to have appointments with people. And so, so there's that um, it can provide access to rare specialists who are not in your area. If you are looking for a very particular sort of therapist and your area doesn't have that kind of therapist, then Talkspace can hook you up with someone like that. And as I said, it can, it can reduce the cost of treatment, which is, you know, a barrier for many people. Like I said, there's no office. You don't have offices cost a lot of money. And when counselors rent offices, they have to pass that, that cost onto their clients. And so Talkspace doesn't have to do that. Also there's travel and parking. I mean, don't underestimate the cost of travel and the cost of parking for both the counselor and the client. 
also there's a there's a lot of benefits to what we call asynchronous counseling right the meaning that there's a message and then a, and then there's the person receives the message thinks about it and then responds at a later time your your therapist can take more time to figure out the best way to respond they don't just they you know the the counselor doesn't just respond by saying hmm tell me more <laughs> you know they they really think about what you're saying and try to provide a therapeutic uh, message of some kind and the the therapist can also provide resources more easily right because they, they can they can presumably online counselors are much better at finding online resources and sending you those links. They might even have YouTube videos or something that, that they can send you. Also, you can reach out to Talkspace counselors when you need it instead of waiting for your appointment time, right? You can, in a pinch, you can immediately reach out to them. Now, they might not immediately get back to you, but they're going to get back to you probably on average a lot faster than your in-office counselor would. And um, the the reason why I'm particularly enthusiastic about Talkspace and not the other, um, you know, online counseling services is because, in my opinion, it seems as though Talkspace is at the cutting edge of this sort of service. I haven't looked into it extensively, but from from some of the contact I've had, particularly with Shannon McFarland, who is my former supervisee, who has been on this podcast before, she told me all the inside information and and they and I was surprised by what I was hearing and and very encouraged for instance as I've been saying they train all of, all of their online counselors and not all the sites do this um, so and I completely trust Shannon McFarlane as a trainer uh, other other websites I know this to be true because I I've been following this industry for I don't know seven years now and there have been other sites where they don't train the counselors at all. They just any any counselor can just sign up. Um, also, to be a to be eligible to be a counselor for Talkspace, you have to be fully licensed. In other words, you have to have a number of years of post grad experience. You you can't be a counselor for Talkspace if you just graduated. And some other sites will allow you know recent grads, or they allow people who don't even have a license at all to be a counselor on their site. It's just, it's basically just kind of like a free market, if that makes any sense. So when you go to Talkspace, you, you're assured that these are legit counselors who have been vetted rather than just any old person who just claims that they're good at it. So, so that's another benefit. Also Talkspace makes sure that their site is super secure to protect their, you know, your confidentiality you you know an outfit like Talkspace is pretty paranoid about confidentiality because if it got out that their site was not secure it would be the death of their of their brand and so and from what i understand they're 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 pretty buttoned up about that encrypted you know you know i don't know the words but <laughs> i know the words in, encrypted are involved also they seem to follow an established um ethical code and guideline uh, of of not providing services to people outside of their area, as I was talking about earlier. Um, f- from what I understand, counselors uh, have to be in the state that the client lives in in order to provide services for them, which is the general guideline regarding ethics that you, you know, when you have a license to practice, you only have a license to practice in that state. And so now how they're dealing with this across borders of countries 
is a whole other deal because some countries don't have any counselors in them. You know, there's some countries in the world that they're actually providing services for that don't have any counselors in them. And, and I know that their lawyers are making sure that all that is on the up and up. So if you're in a country, uh, if you're not in the United States, uh, my guess is, is that they've worked all that out as well. And might even have, like if you're in Australia, we have a lot of listeners in Australia. And so if you, if you're in Australia, my guess is, is that Talkspace has Australian counselors on, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sort of talking out of my butt right now, but um, also Talkspace, they, they try to match you up with a therapist who is likely a good match for you. This is the key to success in therapy is when you actually have a good match with a therapist. Now, I don't know exactly how Talkspace does this, but, but at the very least, what I can, what I can say with confidence is that if you don't have a good match, it's extremely easy to switch to a new, to a new counselor because you don't have to go back and like get referrals and da da ask around. Like you, you can just instantly browse another set of counselors and say like, well, I'm, I don't feel like I don't, I'm not feeling it with this one. So let's, let's look at the, let's go back to the list and I'll try this one out. And, and I'm guessing that it's easy. I don't know, but my guess is, is that is much easier than, in office counseling. I haven't done that myself, but, uh, in fact, I was thinking about doing it myself just to kind of not only, um, get some therapy, but also just to, uh, see what the service is like to make sure that I'm endorsing something that I know what I'm talking about. So again, the benefits to talk space, you don't have to drive, you don't have to park. There's no waiting in a lobby. You can message your therapist multiple times a day. Uh, for instance, my former supervisee, Shannon McFarland, she, she not only trains counselors, but she's also a talk space counselor. And she says that she responds to her clients twice a day. One, she gets up in the morning, gets her coffee, gets ready, you know, gets her computer out and starts going through all these messages and she responds and she, you know, she just really, it's a very relaxed experience for her. And then, um, you know, she takes a break midday and does other things. Maybe she trains people, maybe she does something else. And then later in the day, early evening, she sits down again with her computer and then responds to any new messages that have come in. And she's, you know, and she's been working with some clients for months and months. So it's, it's not a, it's not a short-term thing. Originally I thought online counseling, oh, it'd be like a short-term thing, like two months or something. She's like, no, like it, it's just like in office counseling in that you can work with an online counselor for forever, you know? Um, Okay. So again, if you're looking for a therapist, counselor, or you're just curious about this service, or you just want someone to talk with as a supportive person, I think that's what I would sign up for it for currently is, you know, just, just someone to vent with, <laughs> then, then please sign up with Talkspace. And again, use the promo code Kirk for a discount. And if Talkspace sees a bunch of new clients, then they are much more likely to become an ongoing sponsor, which will mean that I can dedicate more time to this podcast. So that was the longest live read of all time, I'm guessing, on any podcast of all time. But, but like I said, this isn't just any old live read, right? This is something that I believe in for the greater good of, of humanity in some ways, just online counseling in general. And I think Talkspace is going to be a major player moving forward. And, and so again... Let's let's see what we can do here. Okay, let's go back to Gypsy. I really liked the cinematography in this show. It's really high quality. I I'm guessing that 
it's much easier for low budget operations to get good cinematographers and, and good equipment now because because I don't I think this is not a super high budget production maybe it is I don't know but the point is is I'm seeing like just a lot of really excellent cinematography even in in TV shows which you know this is is 10 episodes on TV and so I, I was really impressed with it it's very pretty to look at um, the acting was also mostly good there's some moments where I was a little uh, it was a little iffy but uh, the main most of the main actors are very believable and interesting to watch the the writing is actually mostly tasteful the the topic is such a kind of soap opery sort of topic and if they weren't careful the writers Lisa Rubin I believe was the at least the main writer um if it, it would have been easy to slip into a very cheesy zone with this show, given the subject matter, but it, it remained pretty, pretty tasteful in terms of its delivery. There, there wasn't any sensational scenes. I kept, I kept waiting for a scene in which the main character like kills someone or something like that, or there's a, a police shootout or something. It seems like it, that's a common trope for, writers is to escalate the story to a point where someone dies or there's a gun involved. And there was a, there was like a shot of one gun. It's just like in a drawer, it's just like you just see a gun there. It sort of, you know, raises the stakes a little bit, but no one waves the get gun around. So the, the show, the TV show in a way is, it's just a very small story about a screwed up therapist. There's nothing, huge about it if that makes any sense my guess is that season two will start to get a little huger if that makes any sense but um so yeah i thought i thought the writing was was pretty good given this the subject matter and i uh, it's it's a pretty show to watch um i'll tell you what i didn't like about the show i uh, i really hated the ending i just have to tell you i mean the ending the ending in terms of the writing was fine, but it they didn't wrap anything up. I, I as I'm watching the the episodes, I'm like, okay, well, we're getting towards the end of the season. When are we going to get the answer to this? And when when are we going to get the answer to this question? And what's going on here? Um, uh, 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 on the plus side, they the uh, Lisa Rubin, the writer, she she laid everything out very subtly. She she rarely just hit you over the head with something and said, like, you know, this is the story plot moment here. You really have to pay attention to the scenes. Like, for instance, there's this one scene where uh, Jean, the therapist, again, spoilers, she plagiarizes someone else's story or blog or something. And it, unless you watch different tiny little scenes as they're sprinkled through earlier moments, you won't realize who she plagiarized. It, it's not, it's not obvious. You know, they show her on her phone reading a story about written by someone else. And you have to know who that person is by name and you have to know kind of the stuff they write. And then anyway, it, it, I remember as I was watching, I was like, why are we being shown this? And then I'm like, okay, what's she doing here? And then, a few sort of iterations into that into that plot line, I was like, "Oh, I get it. She's plagiarizing that story, and she's da da da." 
and and it it's sort of satisfying to discover those things in a subtle way rather than having them beaten over the head. But anyway, I hated the ending because I kept waiting for answers and they basically just ended the season in the middle of the, in the middle of act two or something, because you know how you have story arcs where it's like things build and tension builds and then there's a resolution. Well, shows like Mr. Robot or even Game of Thrones, They'll end the season with some resolution. Of course, they don't resolve everything because they're going on to other seasons. But or like a TV show like Fargo, where they just completely just go off, and you know the next season is just a completely other story, which is very satisfying. By the way, I love that show. But with Gypsy, they ended the season without answering any questions, and in the final episode, they asked more questions. Now, I wouldn't put it on the annoyance level as Lost, which drove me crazy past season one or two, because that that was their whole thing, is they would just ask all these questions and make you think, okay, what's the answer to that? And why did that happen? And in the last episode, they wouldn't answer any questions and they'd ask more and they'd have like a, a, you know, very ominous music and ominous cinematography to make you to trick you into thinking you're watching something interesting when in fact you're just watching writers basically just circle jerk, you know, but with, with gypsy, it's not that bad, but it's in that direction. What I think happened was the writer was like, what's the chance that I can go to season two? And and my guess is Netflix was like, well, from the pilot, I I think it's a pretty good chance that this is going to, this will be at least two seasons, if not three or something. And so the writer's like, oh, okay, so how about I write this to really, like, hook you and then to sort of really make people want, you know, they're dying for season two. And I think she made a mistake by not wrapping at least some of the stories up by the end. And so uh, now you could argue that some of the stories were wrapped up, um, but not enough, in my opinion. All I have to say is that, when the when the the 10th episode ended i screamed and swore <laughs> i was like god effing damn it are you kidding me that's how you're ending this season <laughs> so um and you know i really wanted to like this show and and there were moments where i really did so anyway uh i think maybe they're trying to make it like house of cards you know how I'm a big House of Cards fan of the first two seasons. After that, it got a little out of control. But that the transition from season one to season two of House of Cards, it kind of feels like that in which they're trying to really make you, oh my God, I can't wait for the next season. But I think they, they overdid it anyway. Um, another sort of criticism that I might have is that I, f- I feel like a lot of these you know, these, there's a lot of shows right now where essentially they have, uh, it's basically a long movie, right? Cause back in the old days, TV shows were episodes where you would have the, the episode was a standalone episode and you didn't have to watch previous episodes or later episodes to understand that one episode, Laverne and Shirley, happy days, Star Trek, even, uh, for the most part, you could you could just watch one standalone episode. Well, all these new TV shows, it's all, you know, the story spans seasons, right? And I think what they're doing is they're 
their Netflix is like, oh, oh, great. We got a, we got a great idea here. We've got a great director. We've got a great actress involved. We've got a great producer. Okay. And what in the past, what they would have done is they would have said, okay, make a movie. Right. But what Netflix is interested in is content. They want, they want a lot of content because in order to justify people spending for Netflix, they need, they need to constantly produce new content or, or buy content from other people, right? Uh, you know, license buy the license to play it. And so I'm guessing Netflix is like, well, how many episodes can we, can we, you know, stretch this story into? And I, and I get the feeling this 13 reasons why was, was another show that was kind of like this by the end of it. I was like, why did you make us sit through all of like just 13 hours of that when it could have been told in a, you know, maybe 10% of the time. And I, you know, although Gypsy isn't that bad, I think it's sort of in that direction. I think it would have been way more enjoyable at like five episodes uh, or even even two hour, you know, a two hour movie or something. So uh, now, of course, you could make the argument that you really need this show to breathe and to lay out the the slippery slope. And I, I felt they did that pretty well. There, There's this one episode where, again, spoilers... Gene and Michael, they're married, and Gene is the therapist, and Michael's a lawyer. And there's this whole episode in which both of them are on the slippery slope to cheating on their spouse. So Gene is, is with Sydney, and Michael is with uh, Alexis, I think her name was. And they're, they're just edging closer and closer to cheating on each other. And they show that progression really well because in real life, it, it, a lot of times in the movies, cheating happens very quickly. But in real life, it's a slippery slope. There's, you know, I believe me, I've talked with so many people about cheating in my in my office. It's a it's a huge issue in people's lives, and and I've and I've been with people as they went down that slippery slope, and and what I always see is. One, alcohol is almost always involved or some other substance, but usually alcohol. And also it's, it's a, it's a step-by-step process, you know, like at you're at work. Well, so for instance, the Alexis Michael story, I think her name was Alexis, his, his secretary, his assistant. At first they're just coworkers and Alexis is, is mildly flirting with Michael and Michael is not pushing her away, but he's not, you know, he's, he's not responding at first. And then they, there's a little bit more flirtation. So this spans weeks, right? You know, there's a little bit more. And then I think he asks her, they, they, there's a group of people that go out to a bar after work and then one by one people leave, but Alexis and Michael stay. And it's just the two of them again, alcohol, and they start talking about each other and Michael starts talking about the difficulties of his marriage and this sort of thing. And then, you know, some, some seeds are planted in that moment. Then uh, they go on a work trip together and again, some alcohol is involved and then they start kind of daring each other. Oh, how about we go swimming? And then they go swimming in a pool together and, you know, it's all innocent, nothing wrong with having a couple of drinks with a coworker and jumping in a pool late at night, you know, nothing, nothing, you didn't, you didn't do anything right. That's all that justification as you go down that slippery slope. And then it's like, Oh, now we have to change because we're all wet. Okay. Let's go up to a hotel room. And how about, you know, it's okay. Uh, you know, I have two robes, nothing will happen. Just come into my hotel room. Blah, blah, blah. 
how about we just have a nightcap or let's, <laughs> I always love that, that term nightcap. I feel like people don't say that anymore. And it, it makes me really wonder about the old days about drinking a nightcap. What does that mean? Anyway, lay down on the, on the bed. Again, you're not touching each other. Nothing's happening yet. You're just laying there. So now if, if you went from, if you skipped all that stuff and you went straight to, uh, you know, naked with a robe on with your coworker on the bed, you'd be like, whoa, you know, that's cheating. But every step of the way, it's this incremental tiny little movement to the next phase. And it, and you can justify it in your head much more easily. You know, like the proverb of being of a, of a, of a uh, frog being boiled alive in a, you know, progressively warm and warmer water. By the way, I'm pretty sure that's all apocryphal. I'm pretty sure frogs actually actually jump out of situations like that. But I hope you get my meaning. Um, Lisa Rubin said that uh, the follow, she provided the following quote regarding um, the the second season. She she says it was intentionally a huge cliffhanger. Jean is a mystery, and a lot of those questions about her past will be answered in the second season. We'll start to understand her foundation and her, and her motivations. So she, she knew what she was doing. Lisa Rubin knew she was, you know, ending with a huge cliffhanger. But anyway, so those, those, that's my overall kind of review of it. But I'll get into the actual counseling of it in a second. Um, overall, I'd give it a 4 out of 10. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a 5, maybe 3. I don't know depending on, on where I'm at. It, 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 you'll, you might like it if you liked Fifty Shades of Grey or uh, maybe in a better light, The Girl on the Train. It has, a, it has a feel kind of like The Girl on the Train. It has that, it reminded me of that, of that movie. Stuff like that. Um, I really liked The Girl on the Train. So, uh, but again, that was just a, you know, one, one movie. It wasn't super long. But, Again, don't expect the season to answer any questions by the end of the season. So before we go into the technique, let's talk about some of the people who star in this show. We got Naomi Watts. She plays Jean, the main character, the therapist. Uh, she has been in a, a lot of different movies and TV shows, but just some highlights that I remember her from are 1995, she was in Tank Girl. Great, great show for back, especially for 1995. But the, the main role I, I was introduced to her was in Mulholland Drive. She plays both Betty and Diane. Oh, that's interesting. She has she has two two uh, characters. She plays two characters in Mulholland Drive, Betty and Diane. And in Gypsy, you know, her two characters are Jean and Diane. I wonder if that's purposeful. But anyway, David Lynch. Mulholland Drive is, I, I think it's like in my top, 20 and maybe even top 10 movies of all time. I, I, I don't know why I love that movie. I mean, I love David Lynch, but that movie is just so weird. That next year, 2002, she was in The Ring. Man, that movie scared me so hard. <laughs> I, I, watched, I remember I watched it on VHS in 2002 on a 13-inch tiny little tube TV on the other side of the room. And I, even though it was this, you know, bad sort of viewing experience, I, it just totally freaked me out. There's something about the way that they made that movie that just, I don't know, like it really, I was fully into it and it, and I don't normally, 
get into those kinds of movies. They usually kind of make me laugh. I mean, they, the jump scares will make me jump, but I'm usually like, okay, come on. But there's something about the ring. Anyway, so she's in that movie. Next, the next year, 2003, 21 Grams. Excellent movie. Excellent movie. 2004, I Heart Huckabees. One of my favorite movies of all time. Love that movie. 2005, she was in Peter Jackson's King Kong, which I was not a huge fan of. 2006, Inland Empire, another David Lynch. She was just a voice in that. I wasn't super into that movie. <laughs> I think that's when David Lynch, you know, just went fully off the rails. 2007, Eastern Promises, great movie, David Cronenberg. 2011, J. Edgar, the one uh, that Clint Eastwood directed. 2014, she was in Birdman. And uh, yeah, so, and she's in a lot of upcoming movies as well. Also got Billy Crudup. He, Billy plays Naomi Watts' uh, husband. And we got, again, tons of movies. Sleepers, Princess Mononoke. He was in the American uh, version as, as a voice. I love Princess Mononoke. Uh, perhaps my favorite um, uh, Ghibli movie. Jesus' Son, great movie. Waking the Dead, almost famous. That's the movie that really made him, quote-unquote, famous. Big Fish, Mission Impossible 3, The Good Shepherd, Watchmen. Man, love Watchmen. A lot of um, his digital penis in that movie, Watchmen. <laughs> Public Enemies, he actually plays Jedgar Hoover. Eat, Pray, Love, The Watch. Man, love that movie, The Watch. He is a, like a cameo, I believe, in that. Stanford Prison Experiment, which I've talked about in another podcast. He was in Spotlight. He was in Jackie, which I still haven't seen yet. He was in Alien Covenant, which I actually thought was was okay. And he's coming up in the new Justice League movie. I don't know who he's playing. Um, Sydney, the, the other main character in this TV show, played by Sophie Cookson, she is younger and hasn't been in that many things, but she's been in the Kingsman and the Huntsman. <laughs> and also she'll be in the new Kingsman movie coming up this year. Also, we got a number of other people, but notably we got Claire uh, played by Brenda Vaccaro. She is a actress that's been around forever and has been in so many excellent movies. And she's won a bunch of awards when she was younger. Uh, 1969, Where It's At. 1969, also Midnight Cowboy. She was, a, she, I think she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Um, maybe Golden Globe. But anyway, a Midnight Cowboy, great movie. 77, she was in Capricorn 1, uh, which, is, which was a huge movie at the time. Same year, Airport 77. There's a lot of these disaster movies in the 70s. And 81, Zorro the Gay Blade. And 84, she was in Supergirl, and more recently, she was a voice, uh, 2016 Kubo and the Two Strings, and many, many other films. And she's, and when I saw her on the show, I was like, oh, wow, you know, she's still, she's still doing it. She's still acting and doing it well. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the technique of, of uh, Jean here. Um, Jean is, uh, she has a number of clients that she works with, and I'm going to break it down by each client that she works with and sort of walk ourselves through her approach to each client. The first client she works with is the Claire Brenda Vaccaro, Vaccaro uh, client. So we have this, this 
older woman. She's probably, I don't know, 65, 60 or something. And her name is Claire. And she's worried about her daughter. She's, she's very focused on her daughter. Her daughter is, you know, not married yet and she doesn't have a good enough job or something. And the mom is coming to therapy with Jean, played by Naomi, Naomi Watts, to talk about how, how she keeps trying to work with her daughter. And her daughter's a grown woman. She's like 30 or 35 or something. And Claire talks about she can't let go and all this kind of stuff. And Jean, the therapist, her whole, her whole push here is to make Claire let go of her daughter. She, she's basically, Jean, the therapist, is basically accusing this client of being controlling and being um, uh, just unhealthy it's it comes across as extremely judgmental. I mean, so to cut to the chase, I'm I'm here to tell you that Jean's therapy and her approach as a therapist is except for one moment is extremely terrible. <laughs> I don't have a good word for it. Incompetent, unhelpful, untherapeutic. Her 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 she's the one of the worst therapists I have ever seen portrayed in the media and uh, well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I should just say that as I was watching it, I was just rolling my eyes at the thing, at the decision she was making. And I couldn't tell if the direct, if the writers, if the Lisa Rubin, if she was trying to write a bad therapist or if she was trying to write a good therapist who was occasionally making mistakes. I couldn't really tell. Lisa Rubin, the writer, creator, her sister, as I said, it was a therapist and was a, was a consultant for the, uh, movie and I've or the TV show and I've read interviews with both of them with Lisa and her sister who's the therapist and I couldn't tell if they were they knew they were writing about an unethical therapist who was breaking a lot of ethics which I'll get into more in a second but I couldn't tell if they were trying to write a terrible therapist one because Jean is so judgmental and you know so this is again just to highlight this this first client. Claire is coming in and she's like, my daughter, you know, I don't know what to do. And she, she's not married yet. And I'm worried about her. And to, with, in general, the, the best approach to a client like that is you listen to them and you, you uh, allow them to vent and you validate their feelings and you validate their worry. And you, it, the, the person is basically needing someone to hear them so that they can come to their own conclusion, which will likely be that they need to pull back from their daughter or they need to stop um, uh, depending on their daughter to define them or something like that. But, but the point is, is you don't, you don't immediately start hammering on her to get her to have boundaries. Okay. So Jean writes in big letters, boundaries in bold, you know, all caps on her notes. You we see a little shot of her going boundaries, you know, cause she's clearly judge judgmental. I mean, if Claire just wanted someone to judge her, she wouldn't have to go to therapy. She just, she could talk to anyone and anyone can judge her. Most people are judgmental. She could go to the coffee shop and start talking to someone and they'll judge her and they'll say boundaries to her. Anyone can do that. But 
therapists are different. Therapists are a different thing. We are better than that. We are actually trying to be helpful. We're not trying to meet our own narcissistic needs of a superiority by judging other people. Now, having said that, many therapists, although they're supposed to not be like this, they are like this. For some weird, weird reason, there are a lot of therapists who hate it when people are connected to other people or are reacting to other people, essentially. You know, I, I could absolutely imagine a mother going into therapy and worrying about her daughter and a therapist saying that she needed to have boundaries and she needed to let it go, quote unquote. And in my opinion, this is all just counter-transference on behalf of the therapist. The, the therapist internally wish, we all internally wish that we weren't dependent on other people. All of us, including therapists, have been hurt by other people. And we've all been there and had thoughts of, I'm just going to do this life on my own. I don't need other people. You know, I, I can, I, I, I'm not going to depend on anyone ever again because it hurts too much. We've all been there. Everyone has been there. Even at an early age, age of two or three, all children have had those thoughts. So, and all adults have as well. So we, we have this, this fantasy of being independent. And when we see other people exhibiting dependence, we naturally have counter-transference because we have an internal fight going on with our own dependence. And unless you know yourself and unless you've been in therapy and unless you understand counter-transference and explore yourself and talk with other people about this sort of thing, then you're going to be completely unaware of your counter-transference. And you're, as a therapist, you're going you're gonna to target your clients with your own internal conflict, which, is, uh, which doesn't like dependency. And so Claire walks into therapy and she's like having, you know, feelings about her daughter, which are legitimate and fine. There's nothing wrong with having her feelings. And Jean immediately starts hammering her about letting go and having boundaries, uh, which is uh, unfortunately a common problem to therapists. So later on in another uh, episode, the mom client is grieving the loss of her relationship with her daughter because her daughter is completely pulled away. And at this, this moment, it's a wonderful kind of breakthrough moment in which the mother Claire is having in therapy. She's just like, I think it's over. You know, I think, I think, um, and she's having a real moment and in Jean, in all of her terribleness, instead of saying something like, yeah, I'm with you or yeah, it makes sense. You're sad or, or yeah, you're grieving or, you know, uh, I understand why you're feeling that way. It makes sense. Instead of saying something like that, Gene does, I don't know, like therapy 101. She, you know, in your very first lecture on how to be a therapist, you will learn uh, one thing. And that is, is do not try to reassure your clients. Don't fix their problems. You know, it's common in, in what, so what Gene does is she goes against that and she says, it's okay, we'll fix it. <laughs> uh, so so Jean is like watching Claire suffer and because Jean doesn't want Claire to suffer she ham-fistedly just says it's okay it's okay we'll fix it which is a ridiculous thing for a therapist to say <laughs> you know all of you have been through tough times and when you go to somebody like say you're you're your dog, your beloved dog dies. You, you know, you've had your dog for, 
your pet dog for 10 years and one day the health takes a downturn and you have to put the dog down and it's incredibly sad and it just breaks your heart and it's traumatic in a very real way. And you go to your friends and family and coworkers and you talk about this and you will see a wide variety of reactions. There will be some people who are, who will react well, who will just be like, man, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm so sorry that happened. And they might even share their own story of their own pet dying, or they might just, you know, occasionally check, how you doing now that, you know, your, your pet has died or whatever the pet's name was. So you get that, those sorts of, um, genuine and non-anxious and helpful reactions. Then there's just, there's a, there's a number of different, some people just ignore you like, oh, your pet died, big deal. And then, then another group of people will get so anxious and so they, they, either they just don't know what to do because they haven't thought about it or they haven't been given a good example, or they're just so anxious that they can't handle the fact that you're suffering. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll try to fix it. They'll be like, oh, well, you know, you can get another, you can get another dog or, well, you know, your dog's probably in heaven and watching over you or, well, you know, 10 years, that's a good run. That's a good run for a dog. You know, you'll hear these statements. And as a person who goes through those kinds of losses, typically not all the time, but typically that, those aren't the sort of things you want to hear. You don't want to hear someone try to find a silver lining to your pain. There's, there's no, maybe you'll find a silver lining down the road, but you don't want someone to ham fistedly just point out a silver lining while you're in the midst of your suffering, right? It, you know, it's sort of like, imagine uh, you just found out that you're going to die within a month, you know, and you tell people like, I, the doctors told me I'm going to die in a month. And your spouse is like, well, you know, you had a good run. You had a good run. I mean, you, that's an extreme example, but that's essentially what Gene was doing in this moment as the mom client is grieving the loss of the relationship she had with her daughter. Gene says, it, it's okay, we'll fix it. And now, I, again, I don't know if the writers were purposely writing a terrible moment in therapy or they were trying to set up what Gene eventually does, which is Gene eventually tries to secret, she secretly befriends the daughter. So this is part of Gene's, the whole story is basically Gene, uh, in a nutshell, the whole story is her listening to her client suffer and then Gene going super out of her way to uh, fix their problems in a secret way behind the scenes. That's essentially what the whole story is. It's like she, she goes behind people's backs and tries. So, so with the mom client, Jean actually finds a way to befriend Rebecca. I think her name is the daughter, uh, like finds her at the hair salon and befriends her, but doesn't say that she's, her mom's therapist and then, and then slowly kind of weasels her way into this woman's life. And then over time tries to get her to uh, respond to her mom and to be nicer to her mom. It's, you know, it's, it's an interesting story in that way. Um, Also at some point uh, in another session, Claire, the mother client, she worries that her daughter is being suicidal. She's like, I'm worried that my daughter is suicidal. But Jean says that her daughter is not suicidal. She says, trust me, your daughter's not suicidal. Now, in this moment, 
she's saying this because she actually knows the answer to this question because she secretly is the friend of her daughter. <laughs> but instead of knowing when to not reveal that, she just, you know, lets it all out. Um, actually, the more I talk about this out loud, the more I think this show is more interesting. Because as I was watching it, 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 it felt like, because the main story is between her and Sam and Sid, which I'll get into in a second. But when you consider these other stories, like with Allison, the, the young woman, and with Claire, the older woman, you see that Jean, there's a chance that Jean is actually really trying to help. And even with Sam, now that I think about it, um, and I'll get into it in a second, it could be that she, uh, Jean wants to solve Sam's problem by being Sam's girlfriend. She, she wants to be Sam's girlfriend because she, she wants Sam to have a stable girlfriend or something, if that makes any sense. Um, okay, so let's go on to Sam. But before we do that, I just want to remind everyone that today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace. Again, go to Talkspace and use the promo code Kirk and you get a discount. And also remember that if you do that now, this today or this week or next week, then Talkspace will, uh, they might become an ongoing sponsor, which would be a, a, a pretty big deal for us. And so uh, please do so. If you're looking for an online counselor, you're just curious, or you just want someone to talk with and to vent with at the end of the day, a professional to vent with, then uh, Talkspace is something to try. It, you know, if, if you give it a try for a couple months and it's, it's not for you, then then so be it. But um, I think, you know, it's definitely worth worth checking out. So again, Talkspace. All right, Sam uh, is the jilted ex-boyfriend of Sydney. And early on in one of the early ses- sessions, Sam is talking about Sydney and, you know, he he feels sad that she broke up with him and he doesn't know what to do and he has emotions. And he seems to be a very mature young man and he seems to be dealing with it normally and guess what gene does instead of gene just pointing out that grief is hard and losing someone is hard instead she says you guys were in a codependent relationship you guys were in a codependent relationship again so judgmental uh she's jumping to a conclusion because uh, by her definition, I'm guessing everyone's in a code. If anyone is in a relationship with someone that matters to them, it's, it's quote unquote codependent. Again, this is probably counter transference from her against her, the hatred that she has towards her own dependency. And it, it was, it's just another example of Jean just being an awful therapist, not just, not just inadequate, but actually just harmful. Um, and, so again, I don't know if the writers and the writer, if, if the writer and the writer's sister, if they were like, oh, this is good, this is the typical therapy, let's depict this, or if they're like, let's give an example of a, just a terrible therapist who like barks at people and says that they're codependent and stuff. Um, uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I have, there are hints in the interviews that I saw that I read with the sister that leads me to believe that that the the consultant uh, therapist slash sister of the creator, I, I there are hints that she, that I think she actually believes this is good therapy. So Jean, just for you, you know, clinicians out there, Jean calls herself a cognitive behavioral therapist. 
just like the creator's sister, Lisa, Lisa Rubin's sister, Lisa Rubin's, yeah, uh, is also a self-proclaimed cognitive behavioral therapist. And she talks about how co- she, she basically in the interviews with her, she characterizes cognitive behavioral therapist therapy as one that seeks quick solutions that doesn't beat around the bush. And she, she denigrates psychodynamic therapy by saying that psychodynamic therapy is like asking about your childhood and all this kind of stuff. And ba- basically the creator's sister has no idea what therapy is, <laughs> in my opinion. The way she talks about psychodynamic therapy is the way that ignorant people talk about psychodynamic therapy. She 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 doesn't now is a is a is a portion of psychodynamic therapy talking about your childhood. Yeah, but all the contemporary psychodynamic people, interpersonal, uh, relational psychoanalysis people. It's much more complicated than that, and actually, it's it has much more to do with the relationship between client and therapist, and also just trying to parse the patterns in people's relationships. Which I I can tell you from experience, not only in my own therapy but as a therapist, is extremely beneficial and can be extremely uh, enlightening and and powerful to people when they actually explore their the patterns of their relationships. The for me and you know in, in my practice. The vast majority of the reason why my clients come to me is because of relationships that they're in. They are in a marriage that is struggling, or they just broke up with someone, or someone just died, or their parents are giving them grief, or, you know, it's all about relationships. We're very relational people, and we can become depressed or anxious or traumatized because of these relationships, but the relationships are the key. And psychodynamic relation, psychodynamic therapy is wise in that it really focuses on that. And cognitive behavioral therapy, I, you know, I absolutely use cognitive therapy. I've studied cognitive therapy, and I absolutely use it probably in every single session. Behavioral therapy, same thing. Absolutely, behavioral therapy is a very helpful model to consider when treating clients, particularly with particular disorders. With trauma, I use, you know, behaviorism is the, is the main basis for my therapy with trauma in that exposure through imaginal recall. All that is behaviorism and habituation and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so uh, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, uh, I'm a huge fan. But the way that co- the way that this uh, consultant for this show talked about cognitive behavioral therapy was the way that uh, CBT therapists talk that is ignorant. They she she was saying again she was characterizing psychodynamic therapy as like this this one dimensional stupid thing, and she was also saying that cognitive behavioral therapy is the only empirically validated therapy, which is also just not true. It's it's it. I understand why some people say that is because CBT therapists will uh, propagate this lie and it's a propaganda because they're trying to essentially like garner resources because they're, you know, if you're a CBT therapist, you, you want to proclaim that your therapy is best so that you get more clients essentially is what it comes down to. Or if you're a CBT researcher, you want your therapy to be considered best because you get more prestige and more funding and that kind of stuff. It all comes down to that. But Take it from me, and maybe I should do a whole episode on this at some point, but 
there are all of the major therapies have empirical support. It depends on the presenting problem, but it, and it also is highly dependent on how easy it is to research certain things, right? When you want to research the treatment for a phobia, like you are afraid of spiders and not, and you don't want therapy for anything else, then yeah, psychodynamic therapy is not is is probably not going to work very well as or at least it's not going to work as well as cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy for a specific phobia of spiders. But the vast majority of clients who come to therapy are not coming to therapy for something as discreet as fear of spiders. Now some are and in those instances, then by all means use, use a manualized treatment protocol or at least something akin to it. But the vast majority of people who come to therapy have a wide array of issues that they are suffering from. And, and those kinds of wides, when someone comes to therapy with 20 different issues and 10 of them have to do with childhood traumas, those kinds of people don't lend themselves very well to a manualized treatment protocol. Anyway, the point is, is that I, I, when I watched this show, I was trying to look behind the scenes and figure out what the writer was thinking. And I think the writer and the consultant to the writer for, for Gypsy, they were trying to portray good therapy and, uh, and they were uh, trying to portray what they thought was, was cognitive behavioral therapy Good cognitive behavioral therapists are not judgmental. Good cognitive behavioral therapists actually really focus on their relationship because they know empirically uh, it's supported that a good relationship is the main outcome factor. You know, when they study actual uh, outcomes of therapy, they realize that the relationship, which is, is a humanistic psychodynamic thing, the relationship is much more important to the outcomes of therapy than it, than what than the particular therapy that you use. And again, I should probably do a whole episode on that too as well. But anyway, the point is, is that when Gene says to Sam, man, you and Sydney were in a codependent relationship. What I think was happening is the writer and her sister actually thought that this was a good intervention for a therapist to say based on other things to say. Now I can't, yeah, I'm speculating here. Um, and I just have to say it's, it, the way it was portrayed, it was not therapeutic. It was judgmental. It was jumping to a conclusion. It was shaming Sam for for caring about his his ex girlfriend and for going through grief. Um, you know, it's just uh, ridiculous. Um, and then at some point, Gene says, "Maybe it'll maybe it'll help to put all of her stuff in a box." So at this point, Gene is telling Sam, "Look." You need to move on. You're, you're codependent. You need to move on. Maybe you should take all of her stuff that's still at your apartment and put it in a box. Now, maybe this will be something that he'll do eventually, but telling a client how to grieve and when to grieve and at what phase to grieve is just controlling and, frankly, abusive. This was an abusive moment because Sam is really looking to Gene. The client is really looking to Gene for help, and he believes in her and he thinks that she's a good therapist and here she is basically telling him what to do. And, um, and it's just awful. 
And this is why almost half of those getting therapy for grief are actually harmed by their therapist. As I talk about in other episodes, I'm writing a whole book on grief, and one of the main uh, meta-studies that is uh, talked about in the field of grief is the fact that when someone is suffering from grief and they go to therapy, something like 38% or 40% of people who go to therapy are actually harmed by the therapist. When, you know, when someone goes to therapy for depression, uh, there's always a chance that it'll harm you. And when you, when you, when you go to a counselor for depression, about 5% of the time, the client is actually harmed by the therapy. In other words, they're worse off from the, from the counseling. Their, their depression is worse. Well, with grief, when, uh, when someone goes to a counselor for grief, something, almost 40% of the time after the therapy has progressed, the, the, the client is actually worse off than if they just never went to therapy at all. And why is that? Well, it's because of stupid shit like this, where you have a you have a therapist who is calling someone who is going through normal experiences of grief and telling him that he's an, he's codependent, he needs to let go, and that he should move on, and that he should put all of her stuff in a box and move on. Now, I'm not saying that the therapist might not suggest that or just like raise it as a question or something. I still wouldn't do that as a, as a therapist, but she, she basically is, is pressuring him to race his way down the process of grief. Now, of course, later on, it's particularly in the last episode, we learned that Jean is actually secretly in love with Sam, I think, or something. I can't tell. Again, I can't tell if, if Jean is secretly in love with Sam or if Jean is just, trying to be a therapist by being secretive you know she is she is she actually in love with sam or is she just trying to be sam's girlfriend and she believes that to be therapeutic there's a lot of questions um she lies about her credentials and her educational background she says that she graduated from stanford but she was not accepted by stanford Uh, i think she tells sam that she gives homework assignments to sam uh, to not contact Sydney, she she calls Sam addicted. He's addicted to Sydney, and that's ridiculous. When you are in love with someone and you get dumped, you think about that person afterwards. Why? Because you're a fucking human being and you have emotions and you're normal and you are attached to that person. That's why you think about that person after they break up with you. And you might think about them for years. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It means you're alive and it means you're human and it means you're admitting to yourself the reality of the human experience. But another, but Jean in all her brilliance calls Sam uh, addicted and basically commands Sam to not talk with Sydney anymore. Even though Sam is actually having good contact with Sydney uh, for the most part to grieve and to transition moving away from her. Um, Jean chastises Sam for talking with Sydney, and at this uh, later on in the in the season, Sam starts to detect Jean's countertransference. He, you can tell Sam's like, oh boy, I think I think my therapist has an issue with this. Like it's a it's a personal issue for my therapist. At a later episode, she does an exercise with Sam. She asks Sam to pretend that she's Sydney. So Jean is like, okay, Sam, pretend that I am your ex-girlfriend. <laughs> and then 
has a role play with Sam and Jean seems to be trying to get Sam to be sexually attracted to her, you know, to Jean, which is um, interesting. Toward the end of the season, Jean hugs Sam for a really long time, which was another notable little moment. Sam, at some point, accuses Jean that Jean is making Sam dependent on Sydney to keep him in therapy and to keep him dependent on Jean. It's sort of a complicated thing if you haven't watched the show. But, but anyway, Sam accuses his therapist that she is um, keeping Sam dependent on the therapist. And Jean doesn't respond to this at all. Jean just, uh, just changes the subject right away. She doesn't even acknowledge this humongous accusation um, that any good therapist would say, oh, okay, well, let's talk about that. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am doing that. You know, that's, that's what a good therapist would do. At some point later in the season, Sam says he wants to quit therapy, which is, you know, a good thing for Sam. You know, Sam's like, ah, I don't, I don't think I want to be in therapy anymore. And Gene, the therapist, desperately says that he shouldn't. He's like, she's like, I, I don't think you should quit therapy. And he gets up to leave the session in, in the middle of the session. And she's, and she's like, but you have more time. You have more time in your session. And he just walks out, you know, and it's like, my God. I mean, that there, there were a lot of scenes that were cringeworthy, but that scene was particularly bad. I mean, to see a therapist begging a client not to terminate, begging a client to stay in her office was just pathetic. But again, that was later in the season as her life becomes unraveled. After termination, Jean frantically and desperately calls Sam several times, leaving him messages. She's basically stalking her own client and saying like, I really need to see you again. I really, we really need to talk. And And I'm again, just further, just massive cringing. Sam actually comes back to therapy, probably because Jean managed to keep Sam isolated from other women because he, uh, she, uh, you know, infused Sydney back at that engagement party. But anyway, okay. So that's Sam, which I, the guy who plays Sam was actually a great actor. The way he delivered his performance, I thought was, was very believable. And um, he was able to communicate subtle emotions very easily. Okay, Allison, the young woman client. Let's let's look at because uh, so this is the third. Is are there only three clients that are portrayed? But anyway, so it's Allison. Um, at some point, so Allison is a young woman, and her life is very chaotic. She has an abusive boyfriend. She uses substances. She is depressed and anxious, and and you know that sort of profile or something. And at some point, Jean asks Allison, she says, Allison, are you on something in this super judgmental way? She's just like, Allison, are you on drugs? (laughs) And it's just so judgmental. I mean, my God, it's as if Jean never even went to school. Um, Maybe that'll come out in season two. You know, Jean never graduated from high school and she just is acting like Dr. Phil. Um, Allison gets up to leave because she her therapist is basically chastising her for using drugs, which is of course ridiculous. And Jean says to Allison, she's like, "I know you want to displace your anger onto me," <laughs> which is 
just a wonderful, uh, super judgmental way of using your therapeutic uh, jargon. I know you want. I know you want to displace your anger onto me. You know, it's like my God. Gene um, also says, "I can't treat you while you're high, so so we'll have to meet next week." <laughs> um, Allison freaks out naturally because she's being chastised and judged and rejected by her therapist, and she doesn't know what to do. And Allison starts to kind of freak out and she starts to talk about her abusive boyfriend. And at this point, Jean completely does a 180 just because Allison is now crying, probably because at this moment, Allison is kind of dependent on Jean in a certain way. Maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe Jean wants to keep people dependent on her. Maybe that's the whole crux of the show. Again, the more I talk about these sessions and kind of really walk myself through walk myself through the entire season with each of these clients. It's it's the story's a lot more complicated than I thought originally, which makes it more enjoyable to me. Anyway, so at this point when Allison kind of freaks out, she's just like, Oh my God, my therapist is judging me. I don't know what to do. And she's telling me to leave the session. She starts to cry and she talks about her abusive boyfriend. And then it, Jean does this 180 and is just like, okay, you, you know, you can rest here. You can lie down. So Jean basically has two modes. She's either being super judgmental and rejecting and counter transferring, or she is, or she goes to complete like bad boundary mode where she just it becomes the savior for her client. Maybe that's another point of this show. It's like, she likes to basically destroy her client's lives so that she can become the good guy in these people's lives and save them. Um, it's sick. <laughs> Just, uh, again, the more I think about it, the, the more genius this show actually becomes because to portray that so subtly, uh, it's almost as if I didn't know what show I was watching until I started analyzing it right now. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, uh, Allison, okay, so the, the best moment of Jean's therapy. There was only one moment where I thought she was actually being a therapist. Um, and that was actually in a moment in which Jean was in the midst of being a very bad therapist in that Jean had uh, Allison, Jean went to Allison's apartment. <laughs> so we'll get into ethics in a second, but Jean actually, you know, tracks Allison down, goes to her apartment, which is uh, unethical in a lot of ways. There's nothing wrong with doing in-home therapy. I did it all the time, but it, the way she did it was um, not ethical. But anyway, um, there's this moment where Jean is talking to Allison in Allison's apartment and Allison is is crying and she, she doesn't know what to do and her life is falling apart. And in this moment, Jean discloses, she self-discloses about making mistakes uh, and Jean's like, I've made mistakes in my own life and, and my childhood was hard and I have worked really hard to make healthy decisions. It's still kind of a judgmental statement to say, cause it's just like, look at me, look how great I am. I, I, I've had a hard life too, but I've managed to make healthy decisions. And by implication, you've had a hard life and you're making bad decisions. You know, it's sort of that implication, but, but when you watch, when I watched the scene, I was I in my notes I was like oh this is the first moment and this is like I don't know two thirds of the way through the season or something this is the first moment in which Gene actually portrayed good therapy even though it wasn't the best and it was also in the midst of her unethically going to Allison's apartment 
Um, so, but it felt genuine. It felt like Jean was genuinely disclosing and genuinely being uh, empathetic toward her client. You know, it, it seemed like she was actually trying to help Allison in this moment and not trying to manipulate her or judge her or something. But she tells her, he, she tells Allison that she shouldn't have come to her, to her apartment. She's at the end of the session. She's like, so just to let you know, I shouldn't have come here tonight. And that'll be our little secret. She says to her, <laughs> uh, you know, God, can you imagine as a therapist doing that to your client, like making a client keep a secret for you? My God. Um, I mean, that's so creepy, right? Anyway, Allison, uh, comes to session randomly in a later session with her abusive boyfriend, Tom. And Tom, what, there, a lot of the characters I thought were written pretty well, but the Tom character was, was so, so it was like a, a cartoonish uh, portrayal of an abusive boyfriend. You know, it's like if someone wanted to make a, like a parody skit, involving an abusive boyfriend, they would hi- they would absolutely get the actor that plays Tom and write it just the way Tom was written. It's like, come on. But anyway, um, Allison comes to session with her abusive boyfriend, Tom, and Jean doesn't do any... When, when Occasionally I have clients do this. They'll come with their partners. You know, I'll be seeing an individual for a while and they come to session with their partner. Well, there's a very fine line between... A, uh, a partner to a client being a collateral contact and being a client. And maybe I'll do a whole episode on this at some point. But the point is, is that there needs there, a conversation has to happen in which this second person coming to therapy, you have to have a conversation with that person regarding the definition of what is happening. Is that person now a, another client or are they just there to provide information or, you know, what does Allison want to have happen regarding confidentiality, you know, regarding the, the, the roles that, that Tom and Jean will play. And, and so none of that happens, of course. And, and Jean actually attacks Tom and tells Tom that he should leave because Jean's a terrible therapist and she wants to save Allison from herself. And instead of actually trying to help Allison with her self-esteem or her stability, she actually, Jean just takes over and, and tries to kick Tom out of Allison's life by herself. Okay, so what are some common themes to Jean's approach? Well, she calls herself, as I said earlier, a cognitive behavioral therapist, but she doesn't seem to have any discernible approach. If I if I didn't know she called herself a cognitive behavioral therapist, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't have said, "Oh, she's a cognitive behavioral therapist." I would have been like, "I, I have no idea what she is. I, I she she's a terrible therapist." who has no idea what she's doing, particularly regarding ethics, but even her approach just, she seems to have like, her, if there was such a thing, her approach would just be called the judgmental approach or the Dr. Phil approach, frankly, this, this sort of paternalistic barking at people about their, about their bad decision-making without any empathy, without any understanding, without any understanding of people's context, without any understanding of, of, uh, the normal course of grief and of human nature, just this, just this barking at people to stop doing bad things. Don't use drugs. Don't be dependent. Move on. Stop grieving. Just all those kinds of messages. So I, there's no therapeutic school that is 
typified by that. There's none. Nobody, no good theorist would ever propose anything close to that kind of therapy. And so um, I, I have no idea how to how to describe her her therapy in terms of actual theory. Um, so, uh, oh, another thing in addition to all this, her her main pushes for people is she also tries to get people not to have emotions. So she, there's a lot of messages in her therapy sessions where she's basically giving the communication to the client that they need to stop having an emotion, which, again, there's no therapy theory that, that does that. There are therapy theories that don't emphasize emotions or aren't super interested in providing empathy, but they would never say shut it down. <laughs> you know, no therapy theory would be like, shut it down. You know, anyway, um, she's also very higher than thou. She come, her, her demeanor in therapy is very cringeworthy in that she comes across like she knows everything and that she is superior The her, the way she responds to her clients. She just, she comes across as extremely plastic. Like there's, like there's nothing there and that she's better than everyone. Um, it's it's I kept thinking that she it seems like she's desperately trying to act like a therapist. Like if if I if she was a real person and I was actually watching a video of her therapy, I would assume that she was an intern who started yesterday and was still trying to figure out how to integrate theory into practice and was so scared of being a therapist that she couldn't really be herself. And which happens, you know, there 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 are sessions of interns that will happen like that. Cause you know, you're freaking out when I was an intern, I was freaking out. I had no idea what, what I was doing. And, and sometimes you fall back and regress to this, to this judgmental kind of state. And so anyway, that's what I would have thought about that. Um, at the end of episode 10, Jean, the therapist, she gives this speech. I think it's about bullying at the school. And Again, she says that she's a cognitive behavioral therapist. I find it weird that uh, anyone would say that. Like, I am a cognitive behavioral therapist. I, uh, I don't hear people say that. Usually I hear people say they're a therapist or they're a counselor or something, but I don't usually hear people proclaiming their theoretical orientation all the time. <laughs> um, and again, I don't know if that's the voice of the of the consultant because she's a cognitive, she's a self-proclaimed cognitive behavioral therapist. Uh, anyway, but uh, she's not a cognitive behavioral therapist because she doesn't understand what cognitive behaviorism is. She is a Dr. Phil therapist. Um, Jean in this speech talks about root causes and a deep seated lack of stability. She's like, you know, bullies, the root cause of bullying is a deep-seated lack of stability, which, again, is completely antithetical to cognitive behavioral theory. They don't cognitive behaviorism is not interested in root causes or or quote unquote deep-seated things. In fact, they're completely hostile to the to that kind of thinking. It's more of a psychodynamic language. Um, she goes on to talk about how in this speech how bullies want to inflict pain on other people. And it's deeply embedded in the bully's history to do that. And they need an outlet. But And bullies really have, uh, you know, they need to have power and, and all this kind of stuff. Again, completely not a cognitive behavioral perspective. Uh, the need for power, 
deep embedded in your history is just like not cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, again, I can't, I don't understand if the writer doesn't understand what cognitive behavioral therapy is, or is just purposely portraying like an idiot. So I don't know. Um, okay. So let's talk about the supervision that she was in. She, Early on in the season, again, because, as I was saying earlier, because it's a very subtle, it's written in a very subtle way. And early in the season, I, I didn't um, realize that she was in supervision. I, I thought she was in a case consultation group. She She's in an office with other clinicians, and they meet around a table and talk about their cases. And it wasn't clear to me until almost, I think, the very last session in which I was like, oh, that one guy is her supervisor. So throughout the whole season, they, she occasionally meets in group supervision and um, which I thought was really interesting that they actually portrayed that because you don't usually see that in, um, in, uh, in depictions of therapy. So someone is presenting a case about a client and some other therapist and Jean reacts in a, again, a super judgmental controlling manner um, and, but the supervisor, so this is like, I think in the first episode, so Jean reacts and her, you know, it was, I, th- I think one of the other counselors is talking about how their client is cheating on someone or something. And then Jean's like very judgmental about that, you know, Oh, you know, he's cheating on, he's doing it again. Da, da, da. And the supervisor steps in and, and, and kind of chastises Jean for having such a judgmental attitude. And he's like, the, the supervisor's like, well, wait a second, you know, it's not for us to decide what people should do with their lives. We're not here to make our clients' decisions. And at that moment, I realized, oh, maybe the writer knows what good therapy is because the supervisor can, you know, is seeing Jean in all of her terribleness. And so maybe the writer does know what bad therapy is and, and the supervisor, and by the fact that the supervisor is pointing this out. Um. Throughout the entire season, all I wanted to have happen is for the supervisor to wake up and actually like slap Jean around a little bit. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but you know, there's all these signs and I was hoping that the supervisor would be like, Jean, we got to talk. Okay. I'm your supervisor and I'm seeing a lot of signs. I think this is going to happen in season two. They, again, because they ans- they asked more questions than they answered. Uh, I thought for sure the supervisor there, it seemed like they were gearing up for the supervisor to intervene, you know, because the supervisor keep, you know, keep seeing all these signs of Jean kind of flipping out and spinning out of control and providing bad therapy and unethical therapy. And the supervisor never does that. So uh, anyway, um, in case supervision in, in group supervision, Jean talks about her clients becoming really codependent. So there's that word again. At some point, Jean says in group supervision that she had a client that was classic borderline. She's Jean's like she's a classic borderline. Uh, you know, now this is a very common phrase that you will hear therapists say: "classic borderline" in this very dismissive way. And for people that listen to this podcast, you know how I feel about that, and you know that I specialize in treating people with borderline personality. And I uh, have a very sympathetic uh, viewpoint of 
the genesis of Borderline. And when you understand the genesis of it, everything makes sense. And uh, to dismissively say she's classic Borderline is an indication, one, of ignorance of Borderline, and two, of judgmentalism, three, of immaturity, four, of just being a terrible therapist, (laughs) in my view. Um, Okay. Uh, later in the season, we see the supervisor starts to confront Jean, actually. And Jean gets super defensive to to the supervisor. And the supervisor notices. He was like, oh boy, Jean is getting defensive. That's no good. Okay, so let's talk about Jean's ethical behavior and lack thereof. But before that, I just want to, again, remind everyone that today's episode is sponsored by Talkspace. As I talked about for, I don't know, half an hour at the beginning of this episode, I just want to say, if you're interested in that sort of thing, you're looking for a therapist, or you just want to give it a try, you're just curious, or you just want someone to vent to every day, and you want to talk to a therapist online, then uh, sign up for Talkspace ASAP, because if we get a uptick, if they see an uptick in that, particularly if you use the promo code Kirk, which gives you a discount, then we might be able to see greater sponsorship from them and maybe other people, frankly. And that'll mean better things for this podcast, which will mean I'll be able to dedicate more time to this and and uh, we can all win in that way. <laughs> okay, so Jean's ethical behavior. Uh, by the way, she's a PhD. She's not just master's level, but I think she might be a licensed psychologist, not sure. We see her decline a friend request from a client. So we see that in the beginning, I think in the first episode, she gets a friend request from a client and she declines a request. So it's like one depiction of she has some boundaries, right? Um, now, she didn't talk about it. I, I don't, I, we didn't see her talk about it with her client later on, which is what I would do, I would say. So just let you know, I saw your friend request on Facebook and I declined it because I, as a policy, due to ethical standards, can't be friends with my clients on Facebook. I'm really sorry about that. It's not an insult to you in particular. It's just it's just the the way that I, it has to be, and I appreciate you reaching out in that way. And in another life, we would absolutely potentially might be friends on Facebook. I don't know. Anyway, so so doesn't take much to say that, and it uh, uh, and we didn't see that, but you know, it, I I, I want to be sure to point out that this is an ethical behavior that she did, in which she declined the friend request. She did not accept it. At least that's what I remember anyway. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that happened. Uh, she stole a friend's prescription pad so she could get benzos. This was early in the season when I, I thought they were going to head down a road in which she was going to slowly descend into benzo madness or like drug addiction, but she didn't do that. But uh, there's a number of things throughout this uh, season where she seems to just get off on stealing things, actually. And uh, which I'll get more into in a second. But so she, she steals a friend who was a MD, their prescription pad so she can get a prescription for benzos. She visits a coffee shop where Sid works. So in the very first episode, we, you know, she's talking with Sam and Sam is telling her about, you know, my, my, my girlfriend broke up with me, Sydney. She works at this coffee shop, blah, blah. And Jean goes to that coffee shop and, basically spies on Sydney. The the mom client, Claire, she says that maybe it's time to take a break. So at some point, Claire is saying, maybe it's time that I take a break from therapy. Maybe 
maybe therapy isn't working for me because, frankly, it probably wasn't because Gene was a terrible therapist. And instead of Gene saying like, okay, well, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about you taking a break if that's, how, if that's what you want to do. That would be the ethical thing to do. But instead, what does Jean do? Well, she says, I'm sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone ever say that phrase without me wanting to punch them in the face. I'm sorry you feel that way. In supervision, Jean says to her supervisor about the mom client, Claire, Jean says, Claire refuses to take responsibility. And the supervisor tries to be the voice of reason to Jean, but Jean says, now, yeah, she's questioning the value of therapy. And it's like, yikes, <laughs> for a therapist to not listen to a client as they are, one, maybe they are questioning the value of therapy, or at the very least, they just want to take a break. If a therapist is that hostile to that kind of sentiment from a client, that is awful. I can tell you from personal experience as a client myself that this happened to me many, many years ago, and it almost bas- obliterated my relationship with my therapist when he basically intimated that he was not supportive of me wanting to take a break. He 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 he, uh, he came across like essentially the message I got was I was just a dollar sign to him that he. He wanted money from me, and that was it. it. I'm sure that wasn't what it actually was, but that's how it ends up kind of feeling. And for a therapist like Gene to do this um, was uh, just terribly untherapeutic and unethical. Uh, again, as, as I talk about her behavior, I think it's interesting how a lot of it is holding together. She really wanted her clients to stay with her, she lived through her clients' dependency on her, and she also lived through her judgment of them, if that makes any sense. She needed that everyday ability for a client to come to her and depend on her and for her to judge them back. And she also had this personality trait of wanting to be secretive. She she really got off on on lies and on sneaking around like a private investigator or something, which is a hallmark of a personal personality that I'll get more into in a second. Anyway, Jean finds Sid, Sydney at uh, somewhere and ends up flirting with her, which is an ethical problem there. <laughs> flirting with the ex-girlfriend of your client. Jean steals benzos from friends. So not only does she steal the prescription pad, but she also just goes into their drawers and steals their, their benzos. Which, which, when I saw this, I thought, why doesn't she just get benzos the normal way? It's not hard to get benzodiazepines from your physician. You go there and you say you have anxiety, particularly because she's a therapist and she could easily, at the very least, point to different elements of her anxiety to justify the prescription of benzos to her. Or at the very least, given how unethical she is, she could have just lied to her physician and, and, and said that she had anxiety and all sorts of things and needed benzos. So it, it was so it, it, it was either depicting how she likes to steal things uh, instead of going through the normal channels, or it was depicting that she had already burned a lot of bridges with physicians because maybe she's already done all that in the past. 
the the show is actually interesting in that they kept referring to the past, how she had previous bouts of terribleness, and particularly Michael, the the husband's like, we're not going back to the way things used to be, are we? So it wasn't like everything was hunky dory, and then things started to fall apart. It was like. Uh, everything fell apart in the past and then she got better and then things are now starting to fall apart again. Uh, other ethical things. Yeah. As I said earlier, she goes to Allison's apartment unannounced. She just shows up at her client's apartment. That's, that's terribly unethical for a number of reasons. One is, is that you are basically forcing your client to accepting you in that moment. And also what if other people were around who I'll witness you walking in to their house. They're like, oh, well, now confidentiality is broken. You are basically saying to your client that you are not in a professional relationship and that you are available at any time. And the client is now justified showing up at your house or your office unannounced, you know, all that just terrible, stupid, dumb stuff. She, Jean goes to an AA meeting with Allison um, and is very supportive. And in this moment, it's questionable ethics. Some therapists will do this. I think I've even offered to clients to do this f- with them uh, and haven't been taken up on it. Basically, because a lot of therapists will do this because they want to get their clients to begin the process of going to AA or begin the process of recovery. And so a lot of therapists will offer to go with them. So I'm not saying on its face it's unethical, but Given her track record, she, this is just another example of Jean just having really fuzzy boundaries with people. And also, there needs to be a conversation with your client prior to you going into a public space like this. You know, you you would say to your client, you'd say, "Okay, we're we're going to go to say a meeting tomorrow, and this is where we're going to meet. And also, what would you like me to say? My relationship is to you is you know because people might ask." who am I and what am I doing here? Do you want, what do you want me to say? I could say I'm your therapist. I could say I'm your friend or I'm a supportive person, or we could even just flat out lie and say, I'm your sister client. What would you like me to do? Well, they never had that conversation. And so when another AA member asks, who are you? The client gene freezes, doesn't know what to say. And then the client says, Oh, she's my mom. (laughs) And so uh, now not a terrible moment, but, uh, but not a position you want to put your client in. And that uh, there's an easy way to address that earlier on. When Jean's life starts to fall apart, she goes back to her notes and changes them. She goes, which is uh, illegal uh, from a HIPAA perspective. And so essentially she, she figures out that Allison is in trouble and that the police are getting involved and, Allison's mom is getting involved. And so she goes back to her notes and she just, she burns her old notes and she just makes up a bunch of old, a bunch of new notes. I think she basically is trying to frame Allison's boyfriend, Tom. So, and, and she's trying to cover her butt, uh, which is interesting, but it also shows that Jean isn't paying attention to her notes in that when she goes back to read her notes, she's like, Oh, these are all very incriminating. So it, 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 we learn a lot. We learn a lot of things in this, in this scene. We learn that she knows she's being unethical, which is interesting because, because there's a lot of moments where I'm like, do, do, does she know that she's not supposed to do that? And 
there, there are a number of tiny little moments, including this one where you're like, Oh, she knows, she knows that this is not right. And she's doing it anyway. So we learn that. And we also learn that, uh, her notes are actually not, uh, she's not trying to cover her butt and her notes. There are certain lines in her notes that are very self-incriminating. And that's an that's a weird practice, right? To to not only act unethically, but then to keep notes that incriminate you in a in a way that you don't, that doesn't it doesn't need to, which is interesting. She go Jean goes to the commune where Claire's daughter Rebecca is at. So she so she secret so she secretly befriends Sydney's ex boyfriend or uh, Sam's ex girlfriend Sydney. And she also secretly befriends Claire's daughter, Rebecca, and goes to a commune with her, a uh, commune in a loose sense, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Jean suddenly brings Claire to yoga without talking about it first. She, she just says in session, let's go to yoga. And again, they don't talk about confidentiality or anything like that and basically forces the mom to go to yoga. Not to say that yoga isn't a good thing, but... It's a, it's, it puts a, it puts the client in a weird position because what if the client doesn't want to go to yoga or what if the client doesn't want you to go to yoga with them? And so there's all that. And actually in the, in a yoga session, it's portrayed that Jean basically wanted to go to yoga herself, not for the client. And in this moment, I wrote in my notes that Jean is a terrible person. (laughs) Uh, Also regarding Jean's ethics, she brings Allison to her secret apartment and lets her stay there. Again, more of that savior complex. Allison's mom arrives at the office. So later in the season, Jean is sitting there and Allison's mom, whom she's never met before and doesn't have, I, I, I'm presuming, a release of information to talk with Allison. And Jean meets with Allison's mom in her office. So the, the proper protocol here as a therapist, if, if, your, if your client's mother shows up to your office, the thing you need to do is say, I'm sorry, I can't talk with you. If you want me to talk with you, I need a release of information to be signed. And here's the form. And if you would like, you could, you could go find this person in your family, have them sign this form and then give it to me and then we can talk. But until then, I, I, can't, I can't talk with you about anything. I can't even reveal to you that I know who you're talking about. But here's the form. And if you want to go to that person, then, then do it. I'm very sorry that I have to be this way, but, but that's, that's how things are. That's, that's ethics. That's the ethical codes. And that's even sort of the law. And that's what you do. But that's not what Jean did. What she did instead was she she said, sure, come on in my office. And they sit down. And Jean tells her that, yes, Allison is my client. So right there, she's revealed patient health information that she's not supposed to reveal. And then she also says, Jean also says, by law, I can't reveal anything. And I'm thinking, when I watched that, I was like, well, too late. You already revealed one of the central things that you're supposed to keep confidential, which is the fact that you're Allison's therapist. You've already revealed that. And then she follows that up with it. But by law, I can't reveal anything. And then Jean goes on to reveal all sorts of personal details about Allison's life, and uh, which is terribly unethical and harmful to Allison. And then Jean 
promises, Gene promises the mom that she will make Allison contact her mom. So Gene says, I promise you, Allison will contact you. I will make Allison contact you because you're worried about her and da 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 da. And in this moment, again, this, it's very consistent with Jean's behavior in that she wants to save everyone. She wants everyone to be happy and not upset. She feels like she can control and ma- manipulate anybody. And, uh, and she's a terrible therapist. There's another moment where Jean forges a letter to her, to her client, Claire, from Rebecca. So, so Claire, the mother client, is coming to therapy and is like sad that her daughter is dis- is distancing herself from her. And she's like, "I'm so sad that my daughter is distancing from me." And so Jean f- forges a letter from Rebecca to Claire, <laughs> and it's like, "I, you know, I'm sorry about how I've been treating you, and I love you, and you know, you just have to give me some time and this kind of stuff." And I'm just thinking how dumb are you as a, as a person to believe that you're going to get away with this? I mean, at some point the mom is going to say, thank you for that letter. And Rebecca, the daughter's going to be like, what letter? I didn't write you a letter. <laughs> and then they're going to, they're going to be like, wait, so who wrote this letter? And then things are going to, you know, start pointing back to you, idiot. So what are you doing? Gene. So again, this typifies, I think one of the main problems with Gene's approach to therapy Claire has legitimate sadness and legitimate pain from distance from her daughter. And that is sad. And there, and there is grief about that. And there are feelings about that. And there are, there's pain about that. And there's a messy process to that. And what Jean should do is act like a therapist and be with that pain and hear that pain and attune herself to that grief. And, allow her client to explore it and and be with her as she explores it. But instead, she just tries to ham-fistedly fix the problem, quote-unquote, by forging a letter to Claire saying that her daughter loves her. <laughs> uh, at some point, Jean actually goes to her own therapist in the episode 10, actually, which is interesting that uh, she finally goes to her own therapist, but she proceeds to lie to her therapist about everything. Um, and the last little bit of ethical comment that I can make is that a police officer comes to her office to ask about Allison. Allison has been listed missing or something, and the police officer arrives. And again, the standard protocol is to say to a police officer, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. I, I, I know that this is going to bother you, but unless you have a subpoena that is undoubtedly something I have to follow, I, I can't reveal to you anything you know, any information. I can't tell you how many times I've heard counselors just, just subdue themselves to a police officer. You know, police officers have to follow the law too. And you have rights. And frankly, the client has rights. I mean, what if you were in therapy with a, with a therapist and a police officer and, and you're randomly accused of something and a police officer shows up at your therapist's office, would you want your therapist to talk to that, to that police officer? I'm guessing no. So, so this behavior, although unethical, is kind of typical in my experience. And so anyway, she lets the, the police officer into the office and Jean pr- proceeds to just offer the police officer information. And he asks for the session notes and she just gives it to him, even though he doesn't have a subpoena or a right to these session notes at all. Now, at this point, she's happy to hand them over because she's actually doctored all the notes 
to cover her ass. And so she's happy about it. But the thing is, is like you realize that Jean could be sued by Allison, even if Allison, you know, even if something happens that's bad down the line, um, Allison can actually later on sue Jean out of her license for doing that. Um, but anyway, so let's talk about Jean's personality. All right, Jean's personality. Well, one of the things we can say is that she uses anger to manipulate and stay in control. There's a number of scenes in which you see that when Jean is threatened or when someone is about to detect her lies, she goes on the offensive and she becomes extremely angry and rageful and she attacks people. This is the hallmark of a, of a psychopath, of someone with antisocial personality disorder, or of, of someone with, a, with some other personality disorder, uh, borderline maybe, narcissism, histrionic. Basically, they either learned this behavior when they were a child from someone in their family, notably a parent who would use anger to manipulate in this way, or they just learned through trial and error that in order to protect themselves at times they need to call upon a rage in order to get people to back off you know because they are very protective of their secretive world it's the same with addicts sometimes people who suffer from addiction when they are confronted or even just it's suggested that they might have a problem with their substance sometimes they can get they can become very angry and rageful not because they necessarily believe it's justified, but because they're so scared of being found out that they call upon rage as a way to get people to be distracted from what they were about to discover, essentially. Another part of Jean's personality is that she lacks a sense of self. That's pretty clear. There's there's no guide for her to fall back on. She, she also doesn't have much remorse. She doesn't self-reflect. She's not... Throughout this whole thing, there's never a moment where we see her until the very end of the season. We just see her basically just reacting to the world around her. And she appears to need other people to define her. And she can't just live her life. She has to go beyond that. She has to involve herself in people's lives that that don't want her involved in, in their lives. She has to not, you know, she can't handle just trying to help people. She has to save them. She can't handle just being curious about Sydney's life. She has to become Sydney's lover and girlfriend. So there's this, there's this desire to define herself through basically evoking emotional reactions in other people. Because when she's left to her own devices and she's just living a normal life, her the and again i'm supposing a lot here based on human experience her her lack of self is extremely anxiety provoking for for people who lack a clear sense of who they are they don't necessarily know what they want be, because at an early age they weren't allowed to explore that at the age of 2 3 4 5 6 they weren't allowed by their family to explore who they are and what they want in opposition to other people or just on their own. And as a result, they don't know what they want. They're just, they're, they're reacting emotionally 
And there's no guiding principle. There's no higher purpose. There's no taking responsibility for one's life because they actually don't know what sort of life they want because of the abuse they went through. And so my guess is in season two, we're going to learn that Jean went through some significant abuse or mistreatment. Probably, I mean, her mother was not a great mother. One, she was also judgmental and, and, um, petty and insulting to particularly to Jean. But we haven't learned about the father, and there's like hints that the father might have been a problem. We learn that Jean used to use suicide as a threat to her husband. She used to threaten suicide to her husband. We also learn that Jean's mom had a history of bad relationships. We also learned that Jean's daughter seems to be aware of Jean's feelings. So Jean and Michael have a daughter. Uh, cute kid, wonderful actress, actually, young young actress. And Jean's daughter is, seemingly is aware of her mother's feelings. There's this moment where I think it's Jean's daughter has a birthday party and Jean makes it all about her. And Jean, uh, Jean's daughter, you, you notice that the daughter is very aware of the mother's feelings, probably because of a history of Jean making everything about her and uh, Jean's daughter knowing that her mother is suffering. We also learn that Jean f- says that uh, she feels invisible, which is something that people who are mistreated will often feel and will result in a lack of self and will result in these kinds of destructive behaviors. Jean also, uh, as I said, ruined her daughter's birthday, made it all about her. And um, we also learned from her husband that Jean used to have a Nancy Drew obsession. So this gets into uh, a number of different, so there's a lot of secretiveness that Jean involves herself in. She, she had this Nancy Drew obsession. She had a secret apartment for eight years. She likes to sneak around and spy on people. She likes to forge things. She's, she's very much concerned about, in a Machiavellian way, trying to manipulate people's lives. Now, it could be argued that if we really held Jean down, she might say, look, I'm trying to do all these things to better people's lives. Now, of course, they're not. But she might say, well, I'm trying to help Sam because I don't think Sid is a good person for Sam. And I also think that Sam's new fiance, I think Sam's rushing into this, even though she has no way of knowing that. And I believe that if Sam was just single for a while and maybe just spent time with me for a bit, then it'll give us some, give him some time to grow and then he can actually find someone else. You know, maybe she would say that when, when it comes to Allison, she wants Allison to be well. And a lot of the things that she does unethically and in a, you know, all of her strange judgmental behavior, again, could be argued that she's trying to help. So it, it's not clear to me that she is, sadistic or out to harm other people. I I think she is just massively confused and also doesn't have a problem. She also gets off on being secretive, which is a hallmark of passive aggressive personality. If you want to hear more about my three hour discussion on passive aggressive personality disorder, then listen to that episode. It's probably early 2017, which I did that um, early to mid. And so uh, when people are mistreated as children and when they're basically 
forced to believe that they can only get their needs met through through passive behavior. So in other words, if you're four years old and you reach out to your parents for love, but your parents don't give it to you and you reach out again, they don't give it to you. You reach out again, they don't give it to you. You reach out for attention, pay attention to me, they don't give it to you. Well, there's a, there's a number of different paths for a person in that position. Well, one of them is that they will learn that if they are passive with their parents, that they will actually get at least some attention or some love. And this, this passive behavior could be manipulating the parents to hate each other so that they turn to you for warmth. Or it could be learning that if you get your sibling in trouble, you will look like a better sibling and therefore you'll get attention that way. And so it's all, it's all secretiveness. It's uh, also another element as to why these kids will develop secretiveness is because they're often abused. And so when they do things and, you know, kids, four-year-olds, they act, they do stuff, you know, and they're not always the best at controlling their behaviors and not always best at remembering the rules or following the rules. And so when a kid breaks a rule, the way they react to breaking the rule really depends on their track record with their parents. If the parents are, are mostly good, the kid might lie a little bit, but they eventually admit it, or they might just admit it right up front. And the, the reason for that is because they trust the parents will handle it well, that they will be uh, fair to them. Well, if you have a parent who is unfair and who is raging or alcoholic or really bad parenting or neglectful or some, some kind of over-the-top reaction to misbehavior in a child, the child will quickly learn that if they become secretive, if they learn the art of being secretive, then they actually will survive to live the next day. And this learned behavior will extend into adulthood. It is basically a survival technique that they depend on well beyond its necessity. And when they engage in it, uh, they actually feel safe. There's a safety and secretiveness for them. They, they feel when they, when they feel unsafe and we all periodically feel unsafe throughout our lives and for these people, they'll, they'll return to that secretiveness as a, as a safety net. It's a warm blanket that they depended upon when they were children. And it actually has some functionality to it because if they, if they become secretive, then they can observe, they can manipulate, they can maybe get their needs met in a very real way. But when you do this sort of behavior, it usually comes back to haunt you because people around you will completely lose trust in you and you'll hurt people's feelings. You know, imagine if Gene didn't have this personality trait, wasn't mistreated as a child, wasn't forced to develop the secretiveness as a child. What if she, in the very beginning of this series, just told Michael everything? Just said, look, I'm feeling a little uh, stressed out. My job is, I think I might be doing some bad things at my job. I, I have this secret apartment I just want to tell you about. And there's this there's this, I have this crush on this girl, you know, there's, they could have solved a lot of things is the point. It wouldn't have solved everything, but it would have solved a lot. And a lot of Michael's reaction at the end of this season 
and his hurt and his anger is because she kept so many things secret and he finally realizes it. He, he sees the tip of the iceberg and he's like, here we go again. Here you go playing this game again. And, and, and so it's very hurtful to be around that. Now, Jean isn't purposely trying to go out to hurt Michael and she's not sadistic in that way. She's not like, ha ha, look at me. I'm going to hurt Michael's feelings. In a lot of ways, it seems as though the writers are trying to tell us that Jean really loves Michael and really depends on Michael and really wants to be with Michael. It, as the season progressed, it looked like she wasn't in love with Michael and was really in love with Sydney. But then toward the end of the season, it, it, it started to feel like that she really loved Michael and was only using Sydney to get at Sam. Anyway, so that's the the main crux of her personality. That the 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 construct of the passive aggressive personality, the dependent personality. There's there's so many different aspects of that. Like I was saying earlier, in terms of her countertransference against dependency, whenever there was any any indication in her clients that they depended on other people, she reacted very judgmental and strong against them. And the only time she was actually therapeutic to a client was when her client was completely dependent on her, when Allison had completely fallen apart and was like completely dependent on, on Jean. Only then was Jean able to relax and not feel threatened and actually be helpful. The, we learned that the mother uh, says that Jean's father created a world of secrecy around Jean. And I'm not sure what that means. I'm sure it'll all be revealed in season two. But the mother says that Jean's father created a world of secrecy around Jean. Does that mean sexual abuse? I don't know. It also seems that Jean likes to commit arson. It's unclear exactly to what extent, but Jean, from an early age, exhibit. You know, she. I think she talks about like when push comes to shove, she just wants to burn it all down which is, again, part of that passive-aggressive personality when you feel like the world... So another element to passive-aggressive personality is because you were mistreated and abused as a young person and made to feel unfairly put upon, you grow up with this constant feeling as if the world is unfair. And when, especially with people who are close to you and especially with people in authority. And so... When her supervisor, for instance, starts to confront her, she reacts very strongly, not because it partially because she's defensive, but in, in my opinion, she's also doing it because she is walking around in a constant state of feeling as though people are putting upon her and people are abusing her. People are treating her unfairly and she feels vindicated and justified in her defensiveness. So when you feel that way, you also feel like, look, I, I, I deserve to take revenge. It's similar to borderline, similar histrionic narcissism, antisocial. When you're abused as a young person, you're walking around in a constant state of feeling betrayed or hurt or abused or mistreated or unfairly treated, then you feel justified in lashing out. But to the person you're lashing out against, they don't usually feel as though it's fair. And so that's, that's where that self-destructive behavior starts to really cascade is because of that original abuse leading to that adult feeling of being unfairly treated by everyone, even when they're not treating unfairly. You lashing out at those people, them lashing back out at you, you feeling as though they are treating you unfairly, and then the cycle just continues and continues. 
Jean wrote in her notes that it felt good to be Diane. There's this very mysterious note in which Jean tried to burn in the barbecue and when she was t- writing about her client, Allison. And it says, there's this one sentence, it says, it felt good to be Diane. Michael finds this note and then further burns it. Not sure what this means. Is it a secret identity of Jean's that she is Diane? That a, a secret identity she had before? Is it someone that she knows that maybe died? Maybe it's like a twin. Maybe a, maybe a twin is involved named Diane that she likes to pretend that she's Diane. It doesn't seem as though it's a multiple personality issue because there's no sign of Diane having multiple personalities or dissociative identities. Um, we also learn that when Michael discovers that Jean is lying again, he confronts her and Jean begs him not to leave her. You know, that th- this is that part in the a season where you're like, oh, maybe Jean really does like Michael. So the the big question is, why is she so interested in other people's lives? And why is she so judgmental? And why is she so avoidant of self-reflection? And why is she so avoidant of her vulnerabilities? Why is she cheating? Why is she secretive? Well, my again, my hypothesis is that she's she's a particular brand of what I might call passive aggressive narcissist or passive pass aggressive personality or a, a passive aggressive type of narcissist or a, with some sprinkling of psychopathy in there because she doesn't care about following conventions and rules and stuff. She wants power. She wants social prestige. She wants attention because she is walking around in a constant state of feeling as though she is being invisible, that no one is, no one cares. No one's paying attention to her. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that's my guess. All right. So let's conclude with just some other random observations about the series. But before we do that, again, just to remind everyone, Talkspace, if you're interested in it, go for it. Sign up now. I'm hoping that a bunch of you will sign up this week. And so uh, Talkspace will be like, oh, okay, well, let's continue being a sponsor. So if you're interested, go there. Promo code Kirk. Every time I say my name, I feel ridiculous, but <laughs> there you go. Um, just other things I have in my notes here are baristas are, are frequent transference objects for people. I, I, any of you baristas out there, people who serve coffee, could, could probably attest to this. Maybe even waitresses, particularly women, I would say. There's this huge tendency for people to uh, project or transfer whatever is on their mind onto baristas. And uh, that was portrayed in this when uh, when Jean sees Sid Sydney in the in the coffee shop and her fantasies about Sydney is just indicative of that. Also, Jean's daughter, I hadn't talked about this yet, is is expressing an interest in non-binary gender expression. And Jean is really not comfortable with it, even though everyone else is. So that was interesting. Sydney is in a crappy band. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, they're okay, but they're obviously not big time, if that makes any sense. They're just a, a part-time crappy garage band. And they have the biggest practice space I've ever seen. And in New York City, no, uh, nonetheless. They're in New York City and... They have the biggest practice space I've ever seen. As a person who's been in a lot of bands, I can, I'm here to tell you that the typical, even expensive, like nice practice spaces are very small 
and very shitty. <laughs> so when I saw their practice space, I was like, oh my God, it's a beautiful, humongous, probably million dollar a month practice space. Um, I also uh, liked, I forgot to mention this, how they made Michael, the husband, into a good guy. They could have easily made Michael into a jerk to justify all of Gene's behavior, but they really kept Michael in this uh, good light. Not a perfect light because he almost cheated on Gene and in a way kind of did. But the, Michael, the husband, is a very sympathetic character. In a lot of ways, he's actually a saint for putting up with Gene over the years. And so I, I liked that part of their writing. I also loved the way they used a cell phone as a plot device. It, it's kind of a rare thing. Uh, it's it's popping up more and more. But whenever I'm watching a, a modern, a contemporary movie or TV show, I'm always thinking, "Where's the cell phones?" Because that's where, whenever you're, especially movies where there's you know thriller aspects or dramatic aspects, a lot of things happen over the phone texting, emailing, Snapchatting, Facebooking, calling people. That's where a lot of the communication happens. When when I have couples, they will have huge fights over particular text chains that they've had back and forth. It's it's a very common thing, particularly with younger people. And so and I'm not gonna talking like young young, I'm talking like, you know, below fifty kind of people. And so the fact that in this TV show the cell phone was sent a central feature in a lot of the goings-ons, uh, again, particularly of the younger characters, I thought was, was really great. I think that writers often avoid it because it's, it seems, I don't know, too contemporary or not sexy enough, or it's hard to portray a phone in movies and TV because it's a small, tiny little screen. <laughs> I also like the fact that Sydney's screen was cracked <laughs> the way that... Young people, because they don't have a lot of money, will often have to suffer through a cracked screen for months at a time. So I thought that was very accurate. <laughs> I also, um, oh, another thing related to the practice space was all of their homes were way too nice for their income. Sid's place, Sam's place, even Gene and Michael's place was probably too uh, expensive for their income. It's hard to know what Michael's income was. It's pretty easy to guess at what Gene's income was, but but at least Sid, Sid and Sam's place were you know these beautiful places that were probably millions of dollars if you actually looked at them on the market. But but that's a common problem with a lot of TV shows. Her her notes are her progress notes are really long, and she hand writes them, which isn't a bad thing. It it's but it would it, it wastes a lot of time in my opinion her her notes were long she would she would spend i'm guessing 10 to 20 minutes handwriting each progress note and when you have 30 clients a week that's you know that can add up and so you know it's just noteworthy um i was thinking that the show might appeal to soccer moms and soccer dads who want to return to their youths and go to cool clubs and make out with young, beautiful people. It, it felt like that for a while. It felt like this was written to appeal to married people with children be, who wanted their youth back. It, it seemed to have that theme in it. 
The, I was also wondering as the show progressed if the show was phobic about about gay male sex. It was obviously not the focus of the show, but there was just a lot of female sexuality in the show, which you know is fine, of course. But I wonder what people, how people will react to that. I, I didn't feel anything as I was watching it. I didn't feel any disdain for any of that uh, theme. But I, just, I wonder if, if gay men, if they were to watch this, if they're just like, you know, why are we being let? Why are we always being left out? Why, why are women? Why is women on women's sex so easily portrayed in a popular show? Whereas men on men's sex is so avoided, do you know, it just, I don't know. I don't know if that's how people would feel, but, um, also I, there's a couple, so two last things. One is, is the, the theme song is Gypsy by, uh, but it's re-recorded by Stevie Nicks. So Gypsy by Fleetwood Mac, one of my favorite songs of all time, actually, I, love that song, especially the ending. In fact, I, I'm a songwriter myself and the ending of that song, there's this celebratory guitar part played by, um, Buckingham and that's his name, right? Lindsay Buckingham. And it is one of the most glorious guitar parts of all time. And I have always loved that transition to that part and have always tried to recreate, I've tried to recreate that sort of thing in a lot of the songs that I've written. But anyway, Stevie Nicks re-recorded it for this uh for this episode and it's it's just that typical there's this very trendy thing now where you take an old song and you slow it way down and you make it darker and you make it mysterious. And a lot of shows are doing this right. It's like don don't you know it's very I don't know. I mean the first 50 million times I saw a TV show or, or even like James Bond will do this at the beginning of their episodes sometimes or beginning of their movies sometimes. Um, you know, it, at the first 50 million times I saw, it, I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting, but now I'm getting a little tired of it. It's like, just why stop it. Um, plus the, they, they truncated the song I, for you musicians out there are people who are very familiar at least with this song gypsy you'll recognize when you hear this this cover song that stevie nicks did but you'll realize that they cut certain parts out of the song to make the song go faster and that just drives me crazy like whenever a song is in a movie or something and they need the the song to get to the chorus faster or something they'll they'll just excise you know five bars from in between certain things and it's very noticeable to me and it drives me crazy why not just one why not just play the fleetwood mac song what's wrong with just getting the rights to the fleetwood mac song and playing that it's a wonderful song <laughs> or at the very least don't slow it down to like a death march and also uh, why excise sections from it when it's such a beautiful song why why break it in that way anyway it's just a pet beef of mine like wet streets when it's not raining outside when they do that in movies and commercials and TV. The last thing I'll say is that this is yet another example of bad PR for psychotherapists. The world already thinks we're crazy and the world already thinks we're, we're voyeurs. The world already thinks we're unethical and terrible and out for our own 
uh, selfishness. The world already thinks we're a bunch of hacks, and this show is not going to help that. <laughs> this show is just, uh, it's like Hollywood has an obsession with writing about unethical therapists. They love it. It's one of their favorite stories to tell. A therapist having sex with people they're not supposed to have sex with. It's just, it's this weird fetish that Hollywood has. You know, there's not a lot of movies about, uh, you know, garbage men having sex with people on their route, you know, or, or even physicians for that matter, having sex with people they're not supposed to. But there's something about their, they just love that story. Like the, the therapist who's secretly crazy, who wants to have sex with everyone. It's this weird thing. And it's, it'd be one thing if there were out of a hundred stories, five of them were that that would be representative or it still wouldn't be representative, but it'd be, you know, at least a little better. But I, I would guess that if you tallied all of the most popular depictions of therapists in movies and TV, I would say 80% of them have sex with people they're not supposed to. Now, as you know, from other episodes, some therapists suffer from problems and they will do stuff like this. And we absolutely need to recognize that and fight against it. But the, we didn't, we don't, <laughs> I, I wonder what the common person will walk away from this show with in terms of their view of psychotherapy. Will they, will because I think it's, it could go either way. I could see someone walking away from the show going like, oh, therapists are people too, or ther therapy isn't that big of a deal. Why do we stigmatize it? Da, 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 da. or well that's a that's an example of a bad therapist and clearly the supervisor and her colleagues were calling her out on that so there there's so there's good therapists and bad therapists and i don't know i i don't know what people will walk away with but um but i know my audience will walk away with um at least the knowledge that this person is terrible and that most therapists are not like this, but some are, <laughs> I mean, what I'll say is some therapists are judgmental. That's a thing for sure. So that I say, I, or, and some therapists have no idea what they're doing. I'll say that. So there's that, but the amount of therapists who would sneak around and have sex with their clients, ex girlfriends and stuff, I would say that's extremely rare. <laughs> I would just rough guess to say 0.001% of therapists have done something like that. Again, total guess based on some research and anecdotal evidence. But anyway, so again, this episode is brought to you by Talkspace. If you're curious, go there, sign up, use promo code Kirk. And that is my talk on the show Gypsy. Let me know what you think. Uh, all you people who emailed me, let me know what you think of my analysis. Am I stupid? Am I wrong? Am I weird? Should I have liked it more? I think I'm going to bump it up to like a five out of 10. I would have bumped it up maybe to a six or seven if they wrapped it up better at the end, because uh, that was, that was really annoying to me. <laughs> or if I had watched it when season two was already out, maybe it would have been a lot better for me because I've been, okay, now I got to watch season two and see things wrap up. I don't know. Anyway, let me know what you think. Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com or go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the contact us page and fill out the form. Also become a patron of the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, when you become a patron, you get access to all of our 
Patreon exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives on various different topics. So thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.